0: The National Archives podcast series, The Battle of the Atlantic, How the Allies Won the War. Presented by Jonathan Dimbleby. This talk was recorded on the 4th of October 2016 at the National Archives, Q. Thank you very much. It's 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 a great pleasure to be here in this citadel of what is of such vital importance to anyone who aspires to write uh, about anything that happened in the past and has been very useful and important to me. Um, It's also quite daunting because I have a suspicion that a number of you have very clear views. Many of you will be very informed. And even if you're not, um, I still feel daunted because I'm always reminded at moments like this of the, 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 the story of the... Politician, cabinet minister at a party conference, like those that are going on at the moment. And he delivers himself of the speech, which is probably written for him by his team, and gets the accolade that is almost routine. People stand up, clap, applause, pat him on the back. He goes down through the central aisle, smiling, saying, thank you very much. And then off to the right, he has a still, small voice saying, Didn't think much of that. So he turns to his aide, who's very sharp and very bright, and says, yeah, that fellow over there said, didn't think much of it. Don't worry at all, says the aide. Have no anxiety of any kind. He has never had a thought of his own in his head ever. He merely says what everyone else is thinking. (laughs) So with that readiness to bolt out of the door at the end... Um, I'll. Uh, so my, my plan is to, to to talk about the book, and then if anyone has any comments, questions, I'd be too glad, uh, obviously, to respond to them. Uh, I want you to put your minds, if you could, in the year nineteen thirty nine, the third of September, a passenger liner called the Athenia, with one thousand one hundred and two passengers on board, was steaming away from Liverpool, bound for Canada, at seven forty three that evening. The liner shook with a massive explosion. Chairs and tables slid in the same direction. Passengers started to flail about, falling to their hands and knees as they sought a a door handle or a rail for purchase. The lights went out. Children were separated from parents. A woman shouts, for God's sake, help me find my baby. Eight hours earlier, the Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, had announced that Britain was at war with Germany. The Athena had been hit by a torpedo. Mercifully, only one hundred and eighteen people lost their lives, including sixteen children and There are some of the survivors who were picked up because they weren 't so far off the coast of, of ireland and they were they were They were taken to Scotland, most of them, and they included Americans. Uh, when Hitler heard about this, the u boat that was responsible was reprimanded severely. Um, He wanted to know what had happened because he feared that it would prematurely bring the United States into the war because there were these American passengers on board leaving the United Kingdom for the relative security of the United States. Um, However, to try and handle that, Goebbels chose to announce that the ship had been sunk under the orders of the First Lord of the Admiralty Churchill in order to bring America into the war. It was a, a nonsense that the Germans were very clearly aware of uh, inside the, uh, the, the German naval headquarters, of course. Um, and they went through the, with this charade. And it is the case that one or two Americans in that neutral era were not entirely disinclined to disbelieve what they'd been told by the Germans. The propaganda war was already underway. The Battle of the Atlantic had begun. It's hard to exaggerate the the importance of that struggle in the Atlantic to the outcome of the Second World War. Britain depended on the Atlantic Ocean for her very survival, for food, for oil, for iron, for wood, for every kind of metal. Were the lifeline to be severed, Britain would have had no choice, would have been starved into submission, and Nazism would have been able to rule the European roost. Churchill would reflect later, I quote him, The only thing that ever really frightened me during the war was the U-boat peril. And, never for one moment could we forget that everything happening elsewhere, at land, at sea, or in the air, depended ultimately upon its outcome. Um, it was not for nothing that it was he who coined the phrase, the title of this book, the Battle of the Atlantic, uh, to make sure that the British public understood its crucial importance to the nation's survival and allied hopes for eventual victory. Roosevelt concurred with him. Here they are. That's their first meeting as both uh, political leaders of their, of their nations, telling the prime minister early in the, in the conflict I believe the outcome of this struggle is going to be decided in the Atlantic. And unless Hitler can win there, he cannot win anywhere in the war in the world in the end. The Germans, or at least key Germans, knew it as well. Grand Admiral Dönitz, there he is, was the commander of the U-boat fleet throughout the war. and he, He repeatedly said the decisive theater of conflict is the Atlantic Ocean. Mercifully, though, Hitler only recognized that intermittently. Um, it's interesting, incidentally, as a sidebar to that. Today, we hear about a book written by a German historian, which um, people like Anthony Beaver, who's a great historian, uh, regards a remarkable book, which has studied Hitler's uh, health. During the Second World War, has demonstrated that he was on increasing supplies of drugs, and that when before the Battle of the Ardennes in 1944, he um, he was actually taking enormous quantities of cocaine, which may serve in part to explain the lunatic decisions he made in trying to take on the the Canadians in that in that in that battle. Um, but it wasn't until May 1945 that by this time Hitler's successor's Fuhrer, Dönitz, instructed his U-boat commanders to lay down their arms after what he described, I quote him, an heroic battle without equal. We remember in deep respect our fallen comrades who have sealed with death their loyalty to Fuhrer and to fatherland. Long live Germany. And indeed loyal they had been, these young men, only one in four of those who went to sea in the U boats survived the war. 30,000 out of 38,000 perished. This was, incidentally, by far the highest proportion of any branch of any service in any theater on either side, including the terrible losses in bomber command. In the process, they sent more than 3,000 merchant ships to the bottom. With the loss, those are the merchant ships in the in the Atlantic convoys, about which a little bit more later, um, with the loss of some a rather carb equivalents of 30,000 merchant seamen who had helped keep that lifeline open. There they are on their, their way in, in Liverpool to board uh, a merchant ship. The, the Battle of the Atlantic was not only the longest campaign in the Second World War, it was certainly the greatest naval struggle in all history. This book is about this epic struggle on which victory or defeat hinged in the Second World War from the Western perspective and during which the balance of advantage teetered from one side to the other with alarming and unexpected rapidity. The battle was fought, as I say, in all parts of this vast and remote maritime area covering many hundreds of thousands of square miles of ocean, not only on the trade route. I'm going to see whether I can make this work, but I'm not sure that I can. No, I can't. Um, you can see the Atlantic. Anyway, the, the main route was, was with the Atlantic route was from New York, Halifax, across to Britain, Northern Ireland, through the Atlantic Gap, uh, about which again more later. But of course, ships are also coming up from the South, South America, up through Venezuela, often to pick up oil through Florida, USA, and up that way, and from the Indian Ocean round to the west coast of the. At continent of Africa, often stopping off the principal important base at Freetown to Gibraltar and around. So it was, it was, and in addition to that, there were independent, uh, uh, unwise, generally independently uh, skippered uh, merchant ships, avoiding the convoy routes altogether, and very exposed they were. It was, it was also fought. In the Mediterranean, very important. In fact, it's how I came to write this, this, this book from what I'd learnt during the, the, of the segment. Mediterranean is an absolute crucial theatre from Britain's uh, point of view. Although we call it the Battle of the Atlantic, it actually was much more, um, than that. Britain had vital imperial interests. And it was there, of course, in North Africa that the United States joined the British on the ground for the first time and thence into it, into Sicily. It was also fought um, uh, from January 1942 after Hitler had declared war on the United States along that Atlantic uh, seaboard from Florida up to the border with, with, with Canada. And that proved to be an extraordinarily fertile a term they used at the time, killing ground for the U-boats. And the impact on Britain of that, just a handful of U-boats, uh, was so severe that Churchill was driven after a few weeks to cable the White House, saying, I am most deeply concerned that the immense sinking of tankers. Remember the importance, all our oil came from outside the United Kingdom. In a little over two months, in these U.S. waters alone, about 60 tankers have been lost or damaged. It is so serious that drastic action of some kind is necessary. The ships were being sunk for a very simple reason. Read your passage from this. This is um, uh, Peter Kramer, who was one of the U-boat commanders to survive the war, and he was one of those who were sent to the Atlantic seaboard um, immediately after Hitler's declaration. And he describes: "We were cruising off a coastal road with darting headlights from innumerable cars. We were in so close that through the night glasses we could distinguish equally the big hotels and the cheap dives." and reading the flickering neon signs before this sea of light against this footlight glare of a carefree new world we were passing the silhouettes of ships recognizable in every detail and sharp as the outlines in a sail catalog here they were formally presented to us on a plate please help yourselves and indeed they did and they went on doing so not for a few days or for a few weeks, but right until May of 1942. And the reason for that was simple, because as those lights were sparkling in the night sky, the US authorities at first did nothing about it. Blackouts across Europe, bright lights on the eastern seaboard. The the uh, reprehensible failure to do that, as it was described by the uh, official US uh, naval historian and a brilliant uh, four or five part history by by Samuel Elliott Morrison he explained when this obvious he was himself served instantly in the in the in the US navy when this obvious defense measure was first proposed squawks went up all the way from atlantic city to southern florida that quotes the tourist season would be ruined he goes on ships were sunk and seamen drowned in order that the citizenry might enjoy business and pleasure as usual, um, it was also fought I think, it was also fought in the again it 's an extension you know oceans run into one another, waters commingle we give them, and cartographers give them names and locations, but waters flow, and they are the the lifelines for all sorts of routes around the world. This one was critically important from the Western perspective because it was the route through uh, into the Arctic Ocean to uh, Murmansk and Archangel on the edge of the White Sea. After the invasion of Russia in spring of 1941, taking supplies from the United States and from Britain around Iceland through very, very dangerous waters because the, uh, the Luftwaffe was based in Norway And there were U-boats prowling. It was deeply exposed, but a very important route. And the conditions, of course, particularly in the winter, were absolutely horrendous. And it was the winter when actually it was safest because it was darker in the winter. Um, uh, There were terrible losses. One of them I write about extensively because it had had naval and political uh, consequences was PQ-17. And when only 11 out of 35 ships arrived, it was... Very important because these convoy routes were central to uh, Allied strategy in trying to appease Stalin, who was demanding throughout this period an invasion of Europe, the Second Front, it was as known. This campaign on the high seas was relentless. Every man for hours, days, weeks on end, on edge, never knowing what might happen. The enemy was always at hand lurking just over the horizon or prowling beneath the waves. In the air, warplanes laden with bombs emerge suddenly from the clouds to wreak havoc below. Ships and submarines may look forbidding, but their hulls are a skein of metal so thin that as Winston Winston Churchill remarked in his characteristic way, a brilliant aphorism, that warships, battleships in action were like eggshells pounding each other with hammers. In this book, I have, I have sought to recapture the character of the war at sea through the eyes of those who endured it in U-boats, merchant vessels, and warships. But I have a greater ambition. It's, it's to put the struggle on the high seas into a global context that puts the Battle of the Atlantic at the epicenter of the struggle for victory in the Second World War. You can't appreciate the character or the scale or the course of the Atlantic campaign without understanding Hitler's obsession with the conquest of Russia, Churchill's unyielding commitment to the British Empire, Roosevelt's need to balance his own instincts against the majority of those of his electorate and the isolationists in Congress, or Stalin's furious demands that I touched on a moment ago that the Western Allies should open that second front. All these factors, of course, put enormous strain on those on all sides. The military commanders. This, in fact, is um, at the Admiralty with the, uh, the marking the routes of merchant ships and uh, seeking to identify where the U-boats, the marauding U-boats, might be. That well, was a twenty-four-hour uh, a day task. These pressures led to tempestuous struggles not only, of course, between the rival capitals, but within them as well, competing perspectives and priorities, competition for resources, laced with intense personal rivalry and often individual enmity. And I'm as gripped by that, if you like, top-table drama as by the drama of uh, of the ocean. And my book goes from one to the other. In that sense, I suppose you could say it's a little bit like a a soap opera, I hope, only in in, in that respect. i give you an example. The the conflict between this man, Admiral Rader, who was the commander-in-chief of the Kriegsmarine until he was sacked in January 1943, um, and there we are again, uh, Rader, Admiral Dunitz. Um, this reached such a pitch of personal animosity, they had a strategic difference as well, that Rader uh, apparently insisted that Donuts should be airbrushed out of every photograph in which the two men appeared together, which is quite difficult to achieve because they did, for obvious formal reasons, appear together quite often. Uh, There was a tremendous tension between uh, Admiral King, the Commander-in-Chief of the US Navy, a very brilliant and a very difficult man, and any number of his senior colleagues, to the point where an exasperated General Eisenhower, who was... A genial person, he had a hot temper, he was genial for much of the time, noted in his diary, one thing that might help win this war is to get someone to shoot king. And between officials, here we are on the eastern seaboard again, in Washington and London, as the British, led by Churchill, demanded more ships and supplies to save Britain from collapse, while their American counterparts, insisted that the British were exaggerating the need and that in any case, the resources, the ships and the supplies were required by the United States to defend itself on two fronts, not only in the Atlantic but in the Pacific as well. And that was a very bitter, sustained struggle which uh, led to really difficult relations even for a time between Churchill and Roosevelt. Roosevelt skillfully dissembling much of the time and making promises that he then... Uh, did not deliver and had no intention of delivering. But perhaps the most ferocious of these battles, and it was very significant for the Battle of the Atlantic, was between the British Admiralty and Bomber Command. And this was so prolonged and so bitter that it provoked one senior admiral writing to another, writing to Admiral Cunningham, in fact, who was then in command of the Mediterranean fleet. Um, This was much more savage. this is contemporary writing, much more savage than our war with the Huns. Um, most of those who perished at sea lost their lives in very grim circumstances. The fortunate ones were those who died swiftly to be blown up by a torpedo or, in the case of the U-boat cruise, by depth charge uh, or machine gun fire. Others were trapped in sinking hulls, asphyxiated by toxic fumes, burnt severely. Some died from their wounds in vessels that very often lacked anesthetics, uh, usually lacked surgeons, very often therefore both. Some drowned when their lifeboats were smashed into flotsam or because after days or weeks adrift without food and water they succumbed and threw themselves very often overboard. Here's a a small taste. I write about it obviously quite a lot because I think the the endurance and the suffering matters, but here's just a a small taste. There is the map of the United Kingdom. The top there, you will know, are the Orkneys and Scapa Flow. And Scapa Flow was the main base of the... Royal Navy's home fleet which is the largest uh, fleet in the in the in the Navy. It was a supposedly secure harbour but it was penetrated by a German U-boat in late 1939. Uh, Under cover of darkness it torpedoed a famous old battleship at anchor there. Mercifully most of the fleet was out otherwise there would have been a much greater loss. Uh, A famous old battleship called the Royal Oak. As the ship went down uh, one of its uh, uh, officers, Surgeon Lieutenant Dick Caldwell, was hurled into the sea with everyone else. He, he came to the surface and describes, I gulped oil and wretched at the filthy taste in my throat, thick black oil smarting in my eyes. I swam and floundered about. I heard cries about me, saw black heads bobbing, and I swam frenziedly again. I repeatedly went under until quite suddenly I gave it up and thought... I'm going to drown. And I thought of all the people I wanted to see again and the things I wanted to do. He then clearly lost consciousness and was plucked half dead from the water. He was fortunate. 833 of his shipmates perished within the hour. And there are many, many other similar examples and on both sides. Here is a Uh, Commander Herbert Werner, one of the other few commanders to survive, recalling the moment when his U-boat was hit. This was the end. U-415 lay crippled, bleeding oil from a ruptured tank, a target to be finished off with ease. Suddenly, some men came struggling up the ladder, shaken, mauled, groggy, reaching for air, tossing inflatable rubber floats to the bridge. This, I thought grimly, was the way many of my friends had died the silent way, leaving no word. And then there was the weather, weather in the winter so extreme in ships that were not equipped adequately for sailing in those waters in that kind of weather, weather that frightened even the most hardened mariners. Here's a, a description, in fact, from a corvette, which were the most effective of the little boats on the ocean because they were like corks they bobbed you got very seasick in them however long you were in them but they worked um, and they didn't sink Um, six days of screaming wind and massed tumbling water of sleet and snowstorms of a sort of frozen malice in the weather which refused us all progress necks wrists Trouser legs, boots, one stands out there, the icy water finding its way everywhere, ducking behind every rail as every other wave sends spray flying over the compass house, and then standing up to face with eyes that feel raw and salt caked and streaming, the wind and rain and the treachery of the sea. The wind doesn't howl, it screams at you and tears at your clothes and throws you against things and drives your breath down your throat again. Sometimes at the worst height of a gale, you may be hove to in this sort of fury for days on end, and all the time you can 't forget you are no nearer shelter than you were twenty four hours ago. That powerful description was Nicholas Montserrat, who went on of course to write her famous book, "The Cruel Sea," which was turned into an equally famous film, though those extracts come from notes that he wrote while he was at sea, um, which were brought together in a short book that came out in 1943 called Three Corvettes. Another account, similar kind from uh, uh, an escort commander called Peter Gretton, who went on to become an admiral, and he described as a a young officer standing on the deck of his destroyer, and destroyers were particularly uh, uh, uncomfortable in this kind of weather because they're long and thin and very big seas meant that they rolled right over, right over the vessel um, and just basically just hove to and hoped for the best. They couldn't, they couldn't move very, at all. Um, and he described a, a wave that was much bigger than the others coming over and grabbing him, hurling him overboard into the water. He thought, that's it. That's the end of it. The very next wave hurled him back up onto the deck again. So he went, as you might do, to explain himself to the captain, who merely berated him for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. (laughs) One likes to think it was done with a lot of relief as well as uh, apparent frustration. Um, uh, In the real, real wet and the real cold, heavily laden ships were easily overwhelmed by that ferocity of the elements. Ships became encrusted with ice which made them top-heavy in a storm. You had to work non-stop to clear the decks in the Atlantic and in the Arctic particularly. Um, Stanchion posts twisted under the weight of the ice. Guns fell off their their mountings, and ships capsized, their crews drowned. Um, And there was precious little escape. It was not surprising, perhaps, with that fury of conditions that another fury was provoked amongst merchant seamen about the behavior of some of those who were safe at shore on land. This is, again, Nicholas Montserrat, who I think articulated extraordinarily well in the same period. The the feelings had a language to describe what his fellow shipmates were thinking. He, He describes... Remember, there was rationing, this is 1942. There was rationing by this time, very extensive rationing. And he describes the black market buyers and thieves, wrangling goods in excess of quota, people taking God knows what profit on the sale and resale of things. Imagine what bloody fools we feel, knowing that a convoy of what we thought vital supplies had really gone to the comfort of such people, the comfort of stupid folk who cannot visualize the price in blood of what they are wasting, the profit of assorted vermin who see in a shipload of necessaries only the chance of a squeeze. By February 1942, Um, it was virtually impossible to drive a car for leisure. In fact, it was, strictly speaking, outlawed, pleasure motoring. Um, But it was quite easy, if you wanted to, to get round it, if you were ingenious or if you had a lot of money. Um, I, I write here, you could acquire extra coupons for fuel by fraudulently licensing your car as a taxi or by claiming dishonestly that you needed to attend church on a Sunday or, if you had the means, by purchasing several cars... Acquiring coupons for them all, but only driving one of them. Were such men, this is now Montserrat, asked rhetorically, stupid, incurably selfish, traitorous? Do they feel clever when they've got their extra whack? Does it give them a sense of power to know that men foolish, valorous, have fought and perished in hundreds just to keep their cars ticking sweetly? Once again, ten such are not worth the skin of the man who dies for them. And one sometimes wishes they could be individually flayed just to prove it in simple terms. Um, Unlike their allied commanders, the German aces, as they were called, the U-boat commanders, were garlanded when they returned to port. Pretty girls, garlands of flowers, bands, uh, awards, often presented by Hitler himself. They were flown to garden, or to Berlin or to his headquarters in eastern Prussia, um, and, and he presented them. In this case, that is, on the left hand, Pryn, who was the person who, who, who sank the, the, the royal oak, being given uh, oak leaves, as it happens, by by Hitler. But the most celebrated of these young aces was this man, Otto Kretschmer, in his short career, he sank more than 50 ships, quarter of a million tons of shipping. He, he was, in character, a martinet, but he was trusted. He had a reputation for fearlessness, imagination, and daring. And he, he, he took forward, pioneered a form of, uh, of, of submarine fighting, which made a major impact on the battle in the, in the Atlantic. It, it, People sometimes think that the the U-boats, because they were submarines, fired their torpedoes from under the water. They didn't. They came up to the surface because they were very unreliable underwater and you couldn't waste 12 torpedoes uh, on the off chance that one would hit. So they came to the surface where they could more or less accurately um, uh, fire their torpedoes at a passing ship. That, of course, meant that they came and fired mainly, not always, at night. So what he would do, he would shadow... Uh, a convoy, 40, 50, 60 vessels, surrounded or going through them by uh, escort vessels, one or two destroyers, uh, um, uh, corvettes, and uh, um, the trawlers as well, armed trawlers, trying to protect the convoys. It lumbered slowly. Convoys, Fastest convoys went at about 40 knots. Slowest convoys, the most of them, went six, seven knots. The U-boats could go faster, so he would. They would on the surface they could go faster. They would shadow in the and as evening fell, they shot in front and then went down in front of the convoy, under the water and waited for the convoy to come overhead. And then he would come up into the middle of the convoy, and there was a, as it were, a turkey shoot. Very easy to get get a lot of uh, kills, and that was his. Um, those were the. Those are the, sub the, the torpedo bays inside the, the um, inside the U-boats. Not very much space, as you can see, um, and there they are, loading them, preparing to load them. They, they would be underwater for seven, eight weeks at a time. They came to the surface. They had to come to the surface to breathe because it was very primitive. You'd be poisoned by carbon dioxide, monoxide, if you didn't. So they came to the surface. Uh, to to refuel the oxygen supply. It was exceptionally dangerous, even though it was very effective. And uh, Kretschner and his crew had several near-death experiences, which are very dramatically described in various accounts by those who were with him. Um, But in June 41, his luck in Mid-Atlantic ran out. He met his match in one of the Royal Navy's most renowned escort commanders, who was called Captain Donald McIntyre. Um, who was in a destroyer HMS Walker and he was one of six warships protecting a convoy of 41 vessels he had just watched at night aghast as uh, uh, the uh, the Kretschmer and and other U-boats working together in in what was called a wolf pack um, attacked his charges he saw an oil tanker explode and wrote afterwards I'd never before seen this most appalling of all night disasters we were shocked into silence by the horror of it, an immediate thought that none could survive. Three, four, five, six more ships went down in swift succession. McIntyre felt helpless. And he wrote later, I was near to despair as I racked my brains to find some way to stop the Holocaust. More by luck than judgment, he detected Kretschmer's U-boat, not knowing it was Kretschmer at that moment, and he bombarded it with depth charges, U-99s. The name of the U-boat was Forced to the Surface and was there settled like a sitting duck, unable to move. Um, most, not all, of Kretschmer's crew escaped, and they were taken aboard the destroyer. Uh, and Kretschmer himself came on last, um, and uh, he was retained. He was um, his demeanor never changed. Uh, McIntyre was to recall what he described as an amusing little incident when Kretschmer found to his surprise that the Zeiss binoculars that he had slung around his neck which were given to him they were a special pair made for him and presented to him by Admiral Donitz Um, uh, was there and Kretschmer tried to take them off and throw them into the sea so that the enemy couldn't uh, get hold of them Um, but they were seized before he could do that by one of the crew handed over to McIntyre who duly recorded afterwards but for the rest of the war, they were my inseparable companions and played their part in bringing several of Kretschmer's successors to a similar fate. Incidentally, by Kretschmer's own account, he and his crew were treated with great consideration and courtesy by McIntyre, um, who made his own cabin available to the German nation. One of these events, I was told, so just in the book, um, uh, that one of the ships, the captain of one of the ships that he had sank was also picked up by the destroyer, by Walker, and the captain, Kretschmer, um, and McIntyre, going back to Liverpool, where Kretschmer was, was to be incarcerated, played cards together in his own private uh, uh, suite, as it were, suite, in his cabin. Um, um, and uh, he noted that they agreed a lot. They were the same attitude they had towards polit- politics. Similar to they preferred to restrict himself to his duties and lament the mess that politicians had made of things. Um, Such chivalries at sea were not uncommon, as they were in parts of the battle on land as well, but they were not uncommon, but there were rules of the sea, rules of engagement, which were honoured. But as the struggle wore on, they became less frequent. And one episode above all others defined this change of attitude. This was in the southern Atlantic uh, of the case of Sierra Leone. Uh, six hundred miles off the coast of Sierra Leone, a U-boat commander called Venner Hartenstein came across a liner. It was the Laconia. You will have heard of the Laconia incident very possibly. It was a troop ship with more than two thousand seven hundred people on board bound for Britain. Hartenstein, because it was a troop ship, it was a legit, legitimate target, and they all they all knew what the vessels were. There was enough intelligence around to know what ships belonged to which side. He fired two torpedoes at the vessel and very soon hundreds upon hundreds of soldiers, many of whom were Italian prisoners of war, were clambering into the lifeboats or flailing around in the ocean. Seeing so many people in the water and hearing the cries of those who were Axis allies, he took the unusual step, Hartenstein, of radioing all ships on, I suppose, what we would now think of as a no-fire zone, saying on open uh, radio, saying... I won't do any attacking if someone comes and picks up these people, British, French, Vichy French, or any other ship. Um, there was a lot of uncertainty and chaos as they awaited to see what happened. Uh, other U-boats came. Despite Hitler, uh, Dönitz was permitted to bring three more uni- uh, two more U-boats to come to the, to the rescue. They were supposed to be on a mission around round to Cape Town. And they started to pick the survivors out of the water. Either they put them in, in boats, the, the uh, rafts or the, the lifeboats, or they sat them all along on the top of the hull of the U-boat and stuffed them down below as well. But in the midst of this chaotic scene, an American Liberator bomber, which had been based on Ascension Island with a, a rookie crew, people who hadn't, two, two, two men, three men who hadn't uh, had a combat mission before, um, appeared not to notice either the people in the water, or indeed uh, the uh, Red Cross flag, which had been draped across one of the submarines. And they tried to sink these submarines. As a result, although they failed to hit the target, they caused chaos. They, the, the German crews immediately severed all the, the, the lines of the boats that were following, the little boats. Um, they made everyone on board the, uh, um, the, 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 the submarines leave the submarine so they could dive to safety below water. One of the survivors of this who witnessed it all was a woman called Doris Hawkins, and she was a missionary on her way home to Britain, and she managed to get into a lifeboat which was already overcrowded with 65 men on board. That lifeboat ignored Hartenstein's advice to stay put for so the what they now knew were two French Vichy warships who were coming to the rescue um, and elected to head for the nearest land, which was, as I say, 600 miles away. They had very little water on board and almost no food. They had no engine. They had oars, and they were able to make a makeshift sail. They drifted across the ocean. Men started to weaken, started to die. Some drank salt water and, maddened uh, by that, uh, succumbed very swiftly and threw themselves overboard. Others became delirious. Others simply stopped breathing. Others... uh, had hypothermia, and some were burnt by the sun in the heat of the day. As they died, their bodies were tipped overboard one by one. Doris recorded, I always found this very touching, that no one had the strength to mark as they wished to do that passage from life into death by singing, Abide With Me. Eventually, after very nearly a month at sea, they made a landfall on the coast of Liberia. Of that original number, 51 had died. Only 15 men and one woman, Doris Hawkins, survived. And altogether, some 1,600 of the Laconia's original complement perished. That attack by the warplane incensed Admiral Durnitz, and he issued what became known as the Laconia Order. And it stated. All attempts to rescue the crews of sunken ships will cease forthwith. This prohibition applies equally to the picking up of men out of the water and putting them aboard a lifeboat, to the writing of cat sized lifeboats, and to the supply of food and water. Such activities, he went on, are a contradiction of the primary object of war, namely the destruction of enemy ships and their crew. In short, mercy. Was no longer an option. It was that laconia order which led the British prosecutors at Nuremberg to demand the death sentence. But as it happened, Admiral Nimitz, the American commander in chief in the in the in the Pacific Ocean, uh, in a in a, uh, a, a document he put forward, he didn't actually appear in the hearings, uh, but he sent a document in which he conceded that he had made a very similar order. And although there is no uh, equal footing between that law case and the other. The impact was enough to secure um, uh, 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 his life, it's his life, and he, he's, he, he served uh, 10 years in Spandau and then was released and wrote his memoirs which are, uh, of course, very self-serving but also very illuminating. Um, the, the Battle of the Atlantic then is a story of critical decisions made and decisions not made. Battles won, battles lost at sea and in the corridors of power, which combined to have decisive impact. War, as you will know, is not neat or orderly. It's a leapfrog from crisis to crisis in which the outcome can rarely ever be clearly foreseen. Mistakes, misjudgments, self-delusions abound. It is tempting sometimes as an armchair historian to... Use the benefit of hindsight to tell you how badly the decisions were, forgetting that those who were there at the time did not have the capacity of foresight, unless they were very rare indeed. They had to deal with what was, not with what they did not know would, might or would be. Um, uh, uh, there were two, however, major errors in the Battle of the Atlantic, amongst others, that I I deal with because I think they're both salient and pertinent and they were avoidable at the time. It's widely believed, in fact it's become a, a popular myth, not only that Letcherley Park was critical to the outcome of the war, the breakers there, which of course it was, but in particular it played a decisive part in the outcome of the Battle of the Atlantic and victory in that ocean. I, I think that is overstated and indeed is a misconception. And I argue in the book that the Admiralty's own failure to protect British communications was of significantly greater moment in the Atlantic. And it's a failure that has been uh, widely, if not uh, generally, overlooked. That's not to say, of course, that um, Enigma uh, did not matter at all. Of course it, of course it did. Um, towards the end of 1941, Kretschmer's successors became increasingly frustrated by the fact that so many Allied convoys going across the North Atlantic seemed to be taking evasive action just as they were about to launch an offensive. Donitz thought there must have been a breach of intelligence. He was told repeatedly this was quite impossible. The code for naval enigma could not be broken. Um, And there it is, of of course. It was used to transmit orders from uh, uh, the headquarters, of U-boat command to the U-boats in the ocean and for the U-boats in the ocean to transmit using the code, giving their position, what had happened, what was happening, what they were planning to do back to uh, headquarters. Um, And the intelligence specialists, German intelligence specialists, could not imagine that it was possible to break it, so they came up with all sorts of other possible explanations. Donitz came up with thought maybe there was a spy in the headquarters, maybe there was a traitor, maybe the allies had some kind of special radar direction finding system, anything but the the truth of greater significance though despite that was that the British were entirely unaware that the German intelligence network, known as BDNs, which they knew the name of, of course, and that existed, was able to read most of the messages transmitted by the Admiralty to its own warships, and especially to those warships uh, uh, and the merchant ships in the convoys. There was immediately after the war a top-secret report, which was de- deemed at the time so disturbing and important. It was an Admiralty report. That only three copies were ever made. That concluded that by 1942, I quote from it, the enemy was reading most of the North Atlantic convoy traffic so quickly that he often had movements and diversion information. That was diversion because of the known position by the British of where the uh, of where the U-boats were had these. Um, this diversion information 10 to 20 hours in advance. Thus, Dönitz was in a position, I quote again, to forecast alterations in convoy routes to avoid U-boats and therefore to re-concentrate his wolf packs on our convoys. And it, it judged uh, damningly, it was called the Thai Report, quotes this leakage of information through inadequate codes and ciphers not only cost us dearly in men and ship's but very nearly lost us the war. Perhaps of even greater significance was a battle within the United Kingdom between the Admiralty and the Air Ministry, and specifically Bomber Command, that one that the Admiral describes being more savage than the war against the Huns. This pity, this man, Sir Arthur Harris, Commander-in-Chief of Bomber Command, against this man, Admiral Pound, uh, the, the first sea lord. Now, Pound wanted some of these, the very long-range bombers, and for a crucial role. They were the only aircraft with the range to fly into the remotest part of the North Atlantic convoy route to challenge the U-boats from the air. It was here in the Atlantic Gap. I haven't mentioned it. I mentioned it earlier. Right in the middle there, you would think it was land if you didn't know that. It was known sometimes as the Atlantic Gap and sometimes as the Air Gap. The air gap there, as it's it's defined, within that gap is approximately 300 miles by 600 miles. um, It was virtually impossible, well, it was impossible for any land-based aircraft to reach there to cause any uh, uh, disruption to the U-boats and get back uh, to land. So the the wolf packs used to congregate um, either side of the air gap, waiting for the convoys, the full ones going uh, uh, going uh, uh, going east, and the empty ones coming back west, or usually relatively empty ones coming back west, and they were having a very easy picking there. Um, the Harris knew that, but he was unwilling to listen because he was not willing to acknowledge that even if the U-boats feared above all else the Threat of attack from the air, but the air, he believed there were better things that could be done with his bombers. Of course, what happened was the, the effect of those bombers, if they were, as we discovered in the Bay of Biscay, discovered around the coast of Britain, the, the, the shorter range bombers were very effective. You either, if you're U boat, had to retreat dramatically and swiftly below the surface where you couldn't launch your torpedoes, or you got shot up. Um, From the spring of 1942, by which time these long-range bombers were available from the United States, Pound pressed that some should be made available for the Battle of the Atlantic, warning repeatedly the war cabinet into the spring and into the summer, if we lose the war at sea, we lose the war. But Harris dismissed Pound with ill-disguised contempt, claiming it would be a waste of aircraft to divert them to the Battle of the Atlantic, and he used very belligerent language so to do, saying they would achieve, quote, nothing essential either to our survival or to the defeat of the enemy. Um, the, the, there were These, these exchanges, all, all of which are inside this building here, are uh, absolutely riveting. At one point, um, um, uh, Pound, who was, who was actually very unwell, but it was a much quieter character, though quite steely, um, wrote in a note on one of the messages sent to him uh, by Harris uh, dryly Shall I hope to have a yarn with you and show you a paper we've just put to the effect that unless we get at least as great an effort from the air over the sea as do our enemies, then there will be a grave danger of our losing the war at sea, and then, amongst other things, there will be no petrol for your bombers. Um, but the, 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 the impact of, of all of this was uh, very, very um, fierce. The, the, the Harris insisted that the war could be over in a matter of months if only he had enough bombers to destroy Germany. That was in the face of quite a lot of evidence to the contrary, which was even available at the time. The Prime Minister hugely admired Harris's aggressive instincts. Um, uh, and despite some residual doubts about what was being called at the time, obviously in the secrecy of the corridors, uh, terror bombing, he, he invariably for a very long time ended up siding with the Air Ministry against the Admiralty, although he well understood the importance of aircraft to the Battle of the Atlantic. Now, it goes without saying, and if you had a chance to read the, uh, the earlier book that I wrote, that I think, Churchill was not only a great war leader, a great political leader, a great diplomat, um, but which I think is not often acknowledged enough. He was a strategic visionary who, more than any other individual, defined the course of the Western War, which shaped Allied policy. Um, And he sometimes, because of his... uh, There were some egregious errors which can easily be enumerated. That is overlooked. But I think his attitude towards the bombing of Germany prolonged the Battle of the Atlantic and led unnecessarily to the loss of a lot of lives. And I think it was the single most obvious uh, error of his uh, wartime leadership. The crunch came in the spring of 1943 when a, a few, for a few weeks it appeared that the Atlantic lifeline was about to be severed, and it was certainly believed in the admiralty that this was happening. A little under three weeks, half a million tons of shipping went to the bottom. Throughout this period, there were more ships being sunk than were being built, although this was beginning to change. It was a fundamental shift, which I don't deal with now, but I deal with in the the book. Um, And for in those weeks, Letchley Park had been quite unable to decrypt Enigma at all, because so a fourth rotor blade had been added to the machine, which made it, uh, it took them nearly a year to, to to find a way of decrypting the naval Enigma, which is much more sophisticated than, than the other Enigma machines. Um, and the Admiralty was in near panic at this. And then within weeks, a number of things turned that near despair into Barely concealed elation. And one of the key characters behind that was this man, uh, Horton, Commander-in-Chief of Western Approaches. He was a forceful character. He liked playing bridge until dawn. He would then go off in the morning and play golf, and he would expect a lot of his juniors to go home and get their golf clubs and go and play with him, and he was very irritated if they didn't um, because he thought all naval officers should play golf. But he was a very formidable and very able figure. Um, and he may have had a somewhat domineering and brutal manner, but he had a fine analytical mind, a huge experience of submarine warfare, and a passion for organization and for detail. As a result, by May 1943, only a couple of months after this Nadia, his men were rigorously trained and superbly led by battle-hardened commanders. And in addition, these things are always more than one thing. There's always a number of factors that come into play. Nearly all the warships were equipped with the latest radio direction finding technology, far superior to that of the Germans, uh, radar. And they had the, the latest and very effective weapons. This one was just one of them, the bow mount, mm-hmm. bow mounted, bow, bar. I'll get it out soon, won't I? Bow mounted hedgehog. And that fired mortar rounds forward so the, the, the pursuing vessel could fire forward without, um, losing track. The problem with the ASDIC, which was the depth sanding um, uh, method, was that the the, the water got so easily uh, disturbed by your presence that you couldn't detect and distinguish the U-boat from any other uh, source of of sonar energy. Um, But these were very, very effective, um, and they were very accurate. And then the aircraft carriers were, enough of them released for the first time, from other theatres of war came on stream and they they had on board them uh, the little swordfish bombers which were very effective um, but most importantly of all by those who were f- in command at that time belatedly the long-awaited very long-range bombers came into play um, they finally were available in the early weeks of 1943 following as it happens instruction to that effect at the Casablanca Conference uh, uh, between the, uh, the Churchill and Roosevelt in January of 1943. Um, and they started to provide cover over the Atlantic Gap. The effect of all of this was almost instantaneous. Donitz was forced to call off the Battle of the Atlantic to all intents and purposes. He said, we've got to keep going. But he said, you've got to keep going. He gave pep talks. Here's one of them recorded by one of those who were there. If we stop sending our U-boats, the enemy will stop escorting the convoys. As it is, we know that our U-boats are pinning down about two million enemy personnel in warships and in repair shops. So we must keep our U-boats at sea even if they never sink a ship. Their mere presence alone constitutes a success uh, in that purpose. That was a measure of the extraordinary shift in in fortunes. In fact, they hardly did after that. They did some damage, particularly to independent merchants. Most escorts got through. Instead of 10, 20 vessels being lost, most vessels got through uh, unscathed. And so by June 1943, to all intents and purposes, the Battle of the Atlantic was over. U-boats continued to maraud, but they were no longer a threat to that lifeline. More particularly, it would now be possible to mount this major uh, uh, decision, the D-Day Offensive in June 44, and the battle for final victory that followed, without fear of either that landing or supplies being interrupted by the presence of U-boats. And that, of course, was only possible because, as I say, the Allies belatedly had won the battle Of the Atlantic. Thank you very much. This podcast is copyright National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.